Hello, right-minded listeners. I just want to thank the Miami Book Fair for all of the fantastic authors they have uh, rounded up for us to to talk with on right-minded. Sarah Manguzo, Steve Allman, David Yoon, Angie Cruz, and Jochito Gonzalez are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all gathering on right-minded as well. Thanks to the folks at the Miami Book Fair. And, and you know, they, along with Patty Smith, Chef Ken Corbin, Zibby Owens, Moshe Safdie, Ross Gay, Stacey Schiff, are, are, are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everybody in person, but also in recorded conversations. So be sure to listen in. Uh, for more information, go to Miami Book Fair or follow MBF at, at Miami Book Fair. Hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I bet you could just Google Miami Book Fair and find out all of this information. So tune in and a big thanks to the Miami Book Fair. Hello, writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, I'm very excited to talk with our guest, Angie Cruz, today for a bunch of reasons. But one is the struggle she had writing her novel, Dominicana, and then getting it published and how she overcame those struggles. So the short backstory is that she was trying to get Dominicana published in 2017, which one might have thought would be somewhat easy because she'd previously published two celebrated novels. But not only did larger publishers reject the novel, but smaller publishers that were more likely to take a chance on such work also passed. And what I find interesting is how sometimes we need a dark moment to find our way to new work and new possibilities or find our way back into our old work. And in Angie's case, in Hitting Bottom, she inadvertently discovered a new novel while sitting in despair on a subway and staring at an older woman who was trying to teach herself English, her novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, which just recently came out. And then she also found an unexpected way back to Dominicana by taking a break from writing and exploring her, her dormant voice uh, through singing lessons. And her story reminded me a bit of when I'd been working on a novel that I, I now call my doomed novel for 10 years. And in retrospect, I realized how it was because of the gloomiest parts of the novel that I actually discovered the 100-word story form. So my failure with the novel created a darkness, but finding the light of a new form of writing uh, led me out of that and led me not only to a whole new path as a writer writing flash fiction, but it changed the way I approach novels and, and nearly everything I write. So I think of it a bit like the the famous Zen Cohen, whose theme is how a curse can sometimes hold a blessing and a blessing can sometimes hold a curse. Mm, yeah, that's so great. And I love those kinds of stories in general, just because they're super inspiring for writers who are going through their own dark night of the soul moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like we all do at some point. I mean, in, on this podcast I shared last year, you know, how I set an intention to write a book that I just could not write. And, you know, I shared about that on the show, uh, but it's been a year and it was actually Charlie Jane Anders who helped me to see when she came on as a guest, um, or maybe she just gave me permission that that book just wasn't working. It wasn't the right time. And now I've started a new book and I can see in retrospect that I was probably trying to write the other book first because I was avoiding this one. Uh, and I've just heard stories like that like I said, countless times, I mean, you don't know until you're on the other side of it. You know, it's hard to see a linear journey, of course, when you're living it. But I also know so well, like that creative beast that lives inside of you knows what it wants to be fed. And you can force it. I've seen it done, but it can be a pretty painful journey to do so. And, and so I just want to say, you know, Grant, with stories like Angie's and yours, I like those too, because you're talking about projects that are much farther along. And in those cases, it's something 
you know, maybe something clicks or you needed to fall down to see something more clearly. And so sometimes we just need to back burner projects that aren't working. And I know that those lead to other projects coming to the fore. And I have shared this story before too, but you know, Margaret Atwood has famously written about her doomed novel, the one that she wrote before The Handmaid's Tale. And she has said, there's no way that The Handmaid's Tale would exist without that doomed other book. So, you know, you have to see how those seeming failures are often ironically fruitful. And the problem, of course, is that in the moment, they just feel like failures, <laughs> you know, which is why sharing them after the fact is so important and so inspiring. There's no dark night of the soul so dark as when you're uh, dealing with a failed novel, I think, Brooke. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> it's really hard. Or a failed anything. A failed, a failed book anything. project. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was particularly inspired, though, by how Angie lets her creative energies and interests off the page broaden almost whimsically while writing a book. And I think that pr approach holds lessons for us all, especially when we're experiencing a dark night of the soul. And with Dominicana, she she was randomly watching karaoke clips on, on YouTube, a friend's karaoke clips, and she wondered why she didn't sing and why she thought she had a bad voice. So she started exploring her singing abilities and took lessons, and then that helped her to relate to her most unlikable character and give her a beautiful voice. And that's when everything in the novel started to fall in place. And she also started decided to read poetry instead of prose while writing it, so she kind of reshaped her creative mindset, I think, a bit. And the novel took 14 years to write, and she even gave up on it entirely for a spell. So I'm just intrigued by how she came back to it and unlocked her creativity with it by stimulating herself with other creative pursuits. And we're going to talk more about that with her. She seems to do this with all of her work, in fact, with her novel, Soledad. She used painting to unlock her creativity. And then with Let It Rain Coffee, she you know cooked elaborate meals. And um, I think, you know, this impulse, I think she just has it as part of her nature because she actually attended school as a visual arts major. And, and she, she worked for a period of time at night getting a fashion design degree while working full time during the day on Madison Avenue. So I think she's tooled her brain for different different types of arts and exploration of them. Hmm. And I don't think I've, I can say that I've methodically practiced another art in a way that informed or unlocked a character in such a dramatic way. But I think it's important to think about ways that other arts can, you know, either just give us a break from our work or stimulate us in different ways off the page. And I try to very consciously mix poetry into my reading for the ways it touches life in different ways than prose can. And I often try to take breaks and, and, and walk kind of aimlessly and mindlessly uh, through, through art galleries or, or, or making collages uh, just as a, as a way to brainstorm a novel. I think somehow dealing with, with images and textures and pasting them slowly just kind of stimulates a different, a different type of thought. So I, I like to think there's a crucial interplay of influences going on uh, when you let other arts into uh, conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I can't say enough about the value of that kind of interplay. And I actually got my graduate degree in interdisciplinary studies, which is like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like, what is interdisciplinary studies? Well, exactly. It's the kind of degree that you do when you are, you know, wanting to pursue something like publishing. Um, it's like an interplay between anthropology and sociology and psych uh, psychology and economics. But what stayed with me about those two years of study was just the ways in which all of those things are interconnected. Right. Like they all have to do with how humans live our lives. And I think we tend to silo those subjects. I mean, no place more than in academia. Right. Uh, but I see the arts, of course, in the same way. Like if you're a writer 
You, of course, can be creatively influenced by fine art or music or creative pursuits like cooking and gardening. Uh, you know, anything that feeds you creatively is, of course, going to expand that overall creative sensibility inside of you. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I object to people saying they're not creative. You know, it's such a way to be personally disparaging and it's enforced by this culture that thinks that there are only particular ways in which we can be creative. And then the reality is, of course, like the larger society doesn't actually value creativity on a broad scale. You know, we only value it if we can monetize it. But, you know, if it's just for the sake of pondering or being expansive, I think it's often seen as like not productive or lazy. And so all of this is just to say, like, I'm getting around to the point of influences, you know, whatever mm. those might be, you know, however ponderous or outside of the seeming scope of your you know, creative endeavor they are, I think they're often feeding you in ways that you don't realize. And I'm thinking about my piano lessons, you know, which unfortunately fell to the wayside since COVID. But I was really attuned when I was playing piano to how it was awakening other senses. And I think it's really wonderful to think about how you can engage your writerly sensibilities and disciplines that have nothing to do with writing. Yeah, your piano playing reminds me of that. I think Einstein did a lot of his um, thinking about the theory of relativity while playing piano. Mm. So that's a big dramatic story. Uh, but I'm sorry to hear about your piano lessons, Brooke. Um, I know. But I want to go uh, revisit. I think we kind of let this big topic go earlier when, when you were talking about this new book project you're embarking on. And I woke up one morning and saw that you had announced on Facebook that you're going to write a memoir, which is <laughs> a great way to build in accountability uh, because people yes. like me are going to be like, what's going on with your memoir, Brooke? Every, every single time I bump into you in the grocery <laughs> store. And, uh, but I know that this has been brewing for several years now and it's really exciting. So I was wondering if you can tell us uh, more about your decision to write it and write it now. And do you, do you have a plan of any sort about how you're going to pursue it? So are you going to take voice lessons or piano lessons <laughs> as a result? Maybe I'll get back to piano. Um, you know, I mean, the reason why now is just kind of a duh moment in, in a way, because I finally just came to terms with the fact that I have decidedly not been writing this book, as you said, which has been brewing for a really long time because I feel afraid. I have a really actually wonderful relationship with my mom, but maybe because of that, she also reads everything I write. And so even though she's supportive, I've been scared to tell this story that I want to tell just because there's a lot there that she doesn't know that I'll be exposing. And I'm wrapping up this course that we offered this fall, uh, as many of our listeners know, The Courage to Write Fearlessly. And Stephanie Fu, who we had on the podcast earlier this year, and Carmen Machado, who wrote In the Dream House, have both just been uniquely inspiring to me. Um, in both cases, their books intersect with things that I want to write about. So I think it's just this confluence of things that all came together, as sometimes is the case in the in the perfect moment to be like, do it. Yeah. Well, I hope it's all right if we check in every once in a while in future episodes to get an update, because I think it would be cool if you shared some of your challenges or breakthroughs as an ongoing type of podcast diary. Although I know that's a lot of pressure on you, so feel free <laughs> not to answer my prying questions. No, I would love it. And the, the best part of that offer is that it does keep me accountable. So thank you. Yeah, maybe I can do a little podcast diary of my uh, own promotion efforts for my book, The Art of Brevity, as well, because I'm always amazed at how much I learn about the publishing side of things with each book I publish. I never seem to know quite enough, but I don't realize that until afterwards. Yeah. And you don't promote yourself enough. So we will give a shout out that the Art of Brevity is coming and we'll talk about that more on future episodes, that and uh, all your books, Grant. 
Cool. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, for now, though, I want to talk about writing books. So I look forward to learning more about Angie's creative process after this short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Angie Cruz, who is a New York-born Dominicana who traveled to and from New York City to the Dominican Republic for most of her formative years. She published her first novel, Soledad, in 2001, and then her second novel, Let It Rain Coffee, in 2005. Uh, But then it was another 14 years until she published her novel, Dominicana, which we're going to talk about more. And Dominicana was inspired by her mother's arrival story. And I want to mention that to research this novel, Angie scoured many photo albums, and this inspired the digital photo archive, uh, which you can find on Instagram at Dominicana's NYC. And it's a really cool part of her creative process. And Dominicana was the inaugural book pick for Good Morning America, America's Book Club. And now she's just published How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Welcome, Angie. Hi, so glad to be here. Well, hey, Angie, I'm very interested in the beginnings of a novel because it's such a big and risky enterprise that is a gamble because it can take years to try to pull it off. And then sometimes it doesn't work. And the beginnings of your new novel are particularly intriguing because I read that you were struggling with multiple rejections from publishers for Dominicana and that you were on the subway when you noticed an older woman teaching herself English from a small handbook. And, and from there came the character Cara Romero, the main character in How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about this beginning and if there was any interplay between the dark period you were going through with your novel, Soledad. Well, you know, definitely, I think that um, when I started writing that book in 2017, I was feeling a lot of despair. Um, one, I was being rejected constantly for my book, Dominicana, being told that there wasn't a market and that it was too quiet. And And I had worked on it so long that I thought maybe it's a book I'm going to eventually shelf. But I was also questioning, is is there a place for me as a writer in the United States that's useful? And, you know, Trump was president and we um, were being inundated with images on the border with immigrants. And I thought, could I do something more useful? Is there a way I could start over? And at that moment, there was a call for immigration lawyers to go to the JFK to support new immigrants. And I said, that would be a useful career. And and then I started thinking about what does it look like to start over? And I thought about a lot of the women in my family who were laid off in during the Great Recession and never, ever again returned to long-term employment. And I saw this woman at the same time thinking about, and I saw her looking at this book, like this handbook, and she reminded me a lot of the women in my community who were in their late 50s, early 60s, a little too early to retire, and yet they've lost the job that they had for 25 to 30 years. And what does that look like to start over then, right? So I was trying to start over. I was feeling despair. And then I was thinking about what it could have looked like for the women in my family. And right then, at that moment, Cara Romero came to me. I, I 
I asked her, tell me something about yourself. And she came back to me from my imagination with, my name is Cara Romero. I came to this country because my husband wanted to kill me. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to write for a book anymore or try to get published, but I could just write for myself. Storytelling saved my life. Story saved my life. Um, I feel like in those moments that were really difficult for me, and I had my phone, I opened a Google Doc, and I just wrote the first section of the book on the train, on a commute. And, um, and I thought, okay, this is working. Maybe what I'll do is write, not thinking it was a novel, just thinking every time I'm on a train or a plane or a bus, I will ask Cara Romero a question. And I downloaded all these interview questions from the internet, like, what are your strengths? You know, interview questions, what are your weaknesses? And she just went off. And, and in some ways, she kept me company during that year. That was quite difficult for me. What a cool story. And I love how you're saying Cara Romero was speaking to you because in all of your novels, you cast these complex working class Dominican women at the center. And so is this a conscious choice or is it the case that women like Cara and others show up in your consciousness and, and just, uh, you know, that the subjects find you? Well, I think that um, it's impossible um, for me not to look at the ways that Latinx and Black community have been underrepresented in mainstream narratives throughout my writing career. And if anything, I think what writers do well is that we notice the thing that people are not looking at directly. And um, I think that it's not conscious, but I do think that I care to write the story that hasn't been told, or I feel like I haven't seen that I need to think about. And one of the things in particular with this book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, is that I was also trying to understand more what it's like. I mean, I'm more distant now from the working class experience. I'm a professor at a university, tenured I have a number of books behind me, you know, and I was like, these women in my life are still in this predicament. It's not like they ever went back into the workforce. They're still struggling with gentrification. How do I love them more? How do I have more compassion for their position? How do I close the distance between me and them? And it was really through listening to Cara Romero, who also is an amalgamation of all these other women that I interviewed for Dominicana. As you had mentioned before, I started this archive just listening to different women looking at their photo albums about their arrival story and the sacrifices they made to get to a dream or a place that they were okay if they ever arrived to that place. And again, it's not conscious, but these are the stories that fill my head. So I'm not surprised that Cara Romero, when she emerged in the book for me, the stories she wanted to tell are about being working class, are about getting laid off, are about, you know, finding a job. I'm so interested in the, in the companionship that you mentioned that you have with Cara or had with Cara on your subway travels. And, you know, it's, it's a time that I, I, I've struggled with my entire adult life, actually, how to, how to make this kind of dead time useful and especially creatively useful, which, which I find very challenging. And so I, I was just wondering if there was anything about the subway that that helped her voice come out and helped you feel like that companionship. And even though I was thinking, in a way, the subway is its own sort of Pomodoro technique, right? You get 30 minutes or an hour or some kind of time constraint to write. And I wondered if that played into your creative process. 
Well, definitely, I think the interstitial spaces that we have in life are the ones where we kind of try to seize to write <laughs> at all. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time professor. I'm a mother, a single mother. I, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities. So writing time is not always the priority um, since I'm always like trying to get through life things. But um, what I found exciting about working on the train that particular day is that it reminded me of a younger writer, um, the writer that wrote Soledad, where, you know, when I was writing Soledad, I was in grad school and I had like five jobs to support myself. I was living in New York City. And when I would write, it would be either late at night with these bursts of inspirations or it was like when I was commuting in New York City, I was like uh, making notes in a notebook and, um, you know, really like instead of like looking at my phone while I'm in the subway, I was like, oh, wow, I could just use that time to just channel this character and see what happens. And the truth is, I didn't think this was going to be a novel. It really was an adventure of getting to know this character and trying to understand this particular political moment. I mean, Trump was president, right? Um, you know, a lot of our communities were under attack, queer community, immigrant community, black community, like overlapping these these intersect as well and i just wanted to understand more like how do we get through this moment that feels so hard how do we get to the other side and one way to do it is to see how other people have gotten through very difficult moments as well i mean the great recession was like a really dramatic and difficult moment for so many people and they're still struggling because of that well, Angie, I'd like to pivot and ask you about the structure of how not to drown in a glass of water because you chose to tell the story through these job counseling sessions that Cara must undergo and the voice is hers. And I also listened to the audiobook and I'd actually love to ask you about choosing that narrator. I mean, the, the authenticity of her as a character really shown through. So would you say a word about your narrator and also how did you decide to tell the story this way? Well, you know, as you know, I, I was writing this for a year in this like interview fashion with Cara Romero, like listening to her. But of course, that doesn't make a novel. And then I had to when I finally sold Dominicana, um, the editor said, do you have anything else? And I said, well, it happens to be I'm writing this weird thing on my phone. I don't know what it is, but it could be a novel. And she loved the premise of it. And she's like, OK, I'll buy that, too. And I ended up putting it in contract and thinking, oh, my God, I have to turn this into a novel now. Hmm. <laughs> These 40,000 words. And I thought, how could I do it? And, you know, the book had many different reiterations. Like initially, I thought that her best friend Lulu would tell the story of Kara and that the, the those interview sessions would be like transcriptions. And then I thought, you know, like maybe the son or maybe the interviewer. And I wrote all those things out. Um, that's why it took me longer than I thought it would take, because it took, I had to figure out what was the best way to tell the story. And then, you know, in my research, I realized that a lot, there were a lot of programs in the United States during the Great Recession, where if you had finished your unemployment checks, you could do shorter six week to 12 weeks to, you know, 20 week sessions. If you, you know, did some kind of internship or you took some classes through the government and I made up the senior workforce program and I said, okay, she's going to have 12 sessions. And it was a great constraint. I actually enjoy constraints because they give me a lot of freedom within those constraints to sort of let the writing go wild. And as you know, Cara Romero has a wild voice, right? And a wild mind. And 
a lot of digressions. So having that container of the 12 sessions, they're, they're about 25 to 30 minutes each, if you read them out loud, hmm. allowed me to sort of move around in her story in a way that I think that if I had all the time in the world, it wouldn't have been possible. And then, you know, being that she's the only speaker in the book and she's telling the story of like the community, I was like, okay, how do I create counter narrative? And, you know, documents became a way, the documents that she's speaking about, like the, um, the lease to her apartment or, you know, her application for citizenship were a way for her, for us to see another dimension of this character, as well as um, see where she's reliable and unreliable in the ways that she told her story. I read interviews uh, with you and, and it was intriguing how uh, many different ways other arts led you uh, into your work or back into your work sometimes. And for instance, with Dominicana, I read that you saw a recording of a friend doing karaoke and you wondered why you had never done karaoke. This made me wonder why I had never done karaoke as well. So I admired you for taking the YouTube singing lessons and learning to do lip curls and exercises to open up your diaphragm and discovering your own singing voice. And then how that kind of led you to fix what was irking you about uh, the novel and uh, give your most unlikable character a beautiful voice. And then with Soledad, it was painting that unlocked your creative work. And with Let It Rain Coffee, uh, cooking elaborate meals played a large role. So I was just wondering if, if, if this is like, like how this kind of exploration of other arts intersects with your writing. I started as a visual artist. So like, I've always felt like there's always been something adjacent to my writing. And I feel like when, you know, I can't get at the thing I want to say either because it's hard emotionally or um, I'm too close to it. Um, I'm in the weeds doing something else sort of creates kind of a jealous lover aspect where it becomes like, wait, wait, why aren't you paying attention to me? Come back, come back. (laughs) And it lures me back into the writing, which has been incredibly useful and also helps me see it in a new way. I want to go back to the the narrator of the book. I feel like the audiobook and the book are two very different experiences. And I don't know if you think that Brooke, but when I heard the audiobook, I was like, "Oh, wow, interesting." I mean, I did want a Dominican ESL speaker. I was interested in seeing how that voice would come alive. But of course, because the voice I'm hearing in my head is so different than the speaker, I was like, oh, wow, it's like a whole other experience. (laughs) So, yeah. So like the reason the audio became so important, particularly for this book, is because part of my process of writing this book was having one of the most incredible um, revision exercises I did was that I was working with um, this wonderful performer, writer, artist who came over to my house when I was it really stuck like in thinking about is this voice working? And she read the book back to me as a monologue Wow! and listening to it as a monologue is when I, it's almost like a playwright. So now I'm moving into the space of theater, right. Where I'm listening to it. And I was like, Oh my God, like, I don't need all this, you know, and that's not actually as funny as it could be. And I started to rethink some of the ways that I was organizing the text, but of course the beauty of it, right, is that when I finished working with this actress who was reading it back to me, I cut out like 30,000 words or 25,000 words. And then the book turned into like a short story. It was like, you know, very short, much shorter than it is now. And my editor said, what happened to the book? I said, well, you know, I had it read it back to me. I don't need all that stuff. 
And she goes, this is not going to be in theater. This is a book. You could bring it all back. And then I had to rewrite the book again, bringing back all the things I cut out. But now I had a real voice that was outside of my head speaking back to me, which was really exciting. So, you know, I think that the audiobook offers this other experience as well. Um, and again, these are different mediums, right? And I think all of it informs the work. I think it's one of the things I love about the audiobooks is that I wouldn't have had that voice in my head. And it was so intriguing and so different. And thanks for sharing that about the almost the spoken word aspect of it. Because of course, that's one of the parts of the journey, you know, and the incarnations that you talked about. And I read that you uh, said in another interview that sometimes part of getting it right was giving up on it entirely. So could you just talk a little bit more about why giving up on it, you know, is, is one way to get it right. Just cause I think that's a little bit the topic of today's show. And I think it's, um, you know, people just get so discouraged and of course you can't really know until you're on the other side of it, that it was right. Well, yeah, this is the thing, right? So when you're doing something, you have, you actually don't have anything else to compare it to. Right. So one of the things in the end was that I was like, it's okay that this book looks like nothing else I've ever read. <laughs> and you always think like, this is a good thing, right? We're innovators. The novel is all about innovation, right? <laughs> but you do move in a nervous space because you don't know how it's going to be received, right? Like first is an English as a second language is already something that made me nervous about putting it out in the world because I was like, are people going to be able to receive that? The structure, the monologue, the, the documents, but, you know, I tried all the different other ways that I know how to tell story, different points of view, <laughs> contextualizing it in a certain way. And I realized that nothing could compete with Gara Romero's voice, right? And I discovered that in the way, and this is a really useful thing as a writer. So like for all the writers listening, is that sometimes the best way to know where the heat of the story is, is by having someone listen to you talk about the story and having them say back what you said. And oftentimes I find, especially with writers that are still not clear about where the heat is and where they should be focusing and what the character um, that should get the most attention is, is the character you start talking about that you're excited to talk about. And sometimes that character is just a small side character that you've been ignoring for some reason. Um, and this is what kept happening with Gada is in the end, I thought, oh, I could have Lulu tell the story, but she never came up when I was talking about the book. And I realized, oh, maybe Lulu doesn't need to be at the center. These are super fascinating uh, exercises, Angie. I, I guess I can tell that you're, you're a creative writing instructor. I, th I think that's su such an interesting way to, to identify the heat uh, in your novel, as you put it. And then listening to your novel being read to you, I can't think that's such a great revision exercise. And so in closing, I wanted to talk a little bit about revision because many of our listeners are taking part in National Novel Writing Month. And when this airs, we'll be uh, toward the end of that. So they'll be thinking of the next of revision. And you said that as a writer, revising is my pleasure space. I actually feel the same. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about why revision is your pleasure space and any tips you might have for writers embarking on their first stages of revision. Well, for me, like, you know, Revision allows me to go deeper in the kinds of ways the unconscious is working, right? So with someone like Cara Romero, who initially in the first draft was a very unlikable character to me, it was a character that 
I struggled with because, you know, she can't say gay and <laughs> she's doing all these things that were like even slightly triggering to me. And I'm like, why am I going into this uncomfortable space in my own work? I also, I know that in order to write a great character, you have to create complexity to their choices and their decisions and, and all the different ways that they are. And so in revision, I literally go inside and look at what I'm talking about. Is it the neighborhood? Is it the character? Is it, you know, this, like all the different aspects and think, well, how can I have more compassion for this person? How can I love this person more? What am I not seeing right away? And you know, that's where the revision gets interesting, right? Like, how am I using language to make sure that this character pops out of the page? I mean, and one of the ways that revision was really fun with Cara Romero is that I initially wrote her thinking that she would only be a Spanish speaker. But then I thought, you know what? I'm missing the fun of having her be an English as a second language speaker because I'm also um, Italian as a second, a third language speaker. Mm. And um, when I was learning Italian, you know, like it's really frustrating because I can't get my tenses right or my prepositions correctly, you know, and, but what it does, all these misspeaks is that it sort of adds breath to the language and you start to see it in a new way. And I feel like making Cara Romero an English as a second language speaker allowed me, which was another revision, right? Because I had to switch the syntax for that to work. I had to play with the prepositions. I had to think about how somewhere like the limited vocabulary of someone who is speaking a second language and really use that as a way to sort of like add more um, cultural context to all the challenges that she's facing. That's so interesting, Angie. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Angie. Good luck with everything. Thank you. This was fun. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease. Brooke, today's trend is not a particularly uplifting one, uh, but a very important one for writers and authors to be aware of, and that's that's plagiarism. Uh, I've read a few articles about the notion that plagiarism on the is on the rise, you know, due mainly to the fact that it's obviously easier to access content than ever. And I know we had a trend a few months ago about people basically creating summaries of books and then republishing those books as their own, which is more than plagiarism. It's basically theft. And we argued that Amazon could do a better job of monitoring those kinds of egregious listings, especially in the instances where it's basically a double listing of an existing title. But this trend is different. This is about people lifting other people's words and failing to attribute their work and paraphrasing other people's work. So how widespread of a problem do you think this is, Brooke? 
Yeah, it's so tough to say because I'm sure a lot of people do this and never get caught or never get called out on it. This summer, there was a pretty big literary story about an anticipated novel that got pulled for plagiarism. That book was called The Leaving. And then the author admitted to the plagiarism. And then she wrote a piece for Lit Hub about why, I guess, uh, she did it. I didn't get to read that story because it also got pulled for being plagiarized, <laughs> of all things. Uh, and mainly, I thought it was a sad story, you know, because the author was 30 years old. Uh, she talked about uh, in the Lit Hub piece that I did didn't get to read and therefore read secondhand from the Times for the sake of attribution here uh, about her mental illness and the pressures that she felt to write a book and get published. So she lost her publishing deal. Uh, but I do feel concerned that a lot of younger people are maybe not being educated in the way that previous generations have been about what's acceptable when it comes to original content. I don't know. I hate to be like an old fuddy-duddy saying that, but I do think there's a thing about like growing up in the world of the internet and open source and not going to the library where you actually actually touch the books that you're working on. And, you know, then you have to like actually transcribe them instead of just cutting and pasting. Uh, so that's just a thought that comes to mind. I, I do think that people do this plagiarize, you know, more than they'll ever admit to, um, because it's, it's so easy to just take something and then kind of rework it, you know, and, and hopefully, of course, not in ways that are so consequential, like plagiarizing your debut novel. Yeah, I followed this story somewhat closely, Brooke, and it was interesting in a number of different regards. Um, I know Carmen Maria Mikado wrote some interesting commentary in her Substack newsletter about uh, Jumi Bello, that was the author at the center of the, the scandal, and about how MFA programs in general and publishing intersect with creating art and they either nourish or don't nourish the art or take care of the artist. Uh, it was a really layered, complicated and fantastic piece. So I'm not going to attempt to summarize it here, but I urge listeners to Google Carmen Maria Mikado and plagiarism and you can read it because she has a, a, a very different take than others. I've always been interested in plagiarism because I actually learned how to write by copying those I admired when I was young, you know, and that was in lieu of having good writing instruction, especially in high school. And it turns out there's a, a psychological aspect to plagiarizing that has been studied and is a phenomena. Uh, people plagiarize uh, those they admire, like I did to a degree when I was young, and they do it because there's an element of insecurity or imposter syndrome, a kind of I'm not good enough ethos that runs through someone who, who, who then will think I'll just grab someone else's words. Mm -hmm. I want to note, though, that there's, there's a line between being influenced by someone and attributing their work. Uh, and then stealing words, of course. So I want to make sure listeners don't think <laughs> I'm a plagiarist in any way. <laughs> but but that line can be fuzzy. And, and a writer has to be hyper-conscious of it and know how to interpret what is inspiration and influence and what is theft. Right. And when we were talking about this earlier, Brooke, you told me you've actually had direct experience with this happening to you. So I'm curious what, about what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a wild story. Uh, and that one of my memoir students who'd taken my six month class twice and my mastering memoir class too. So she'd done what had amounted to like a year and a half of classes with me. Uh, and I was coaching her to write her memoir. And she announced a memoir class through a platform that I have a relationship with. And it was Linda Joy Myers, my co-teacher in all of my memoir classes who forwarded the email announcement and said, doesn't this look a lot like our content? And it was, I mean, it was not subtle. It was our content verbatim. And she was basically teaching our mastering memoir class to this other platform. And it was just a very surreal moment. I bet it was. What did you and Linda Joy do? Well, you know, I have to confess, I was 
furious. Um, you know, when you put your heart and time into your own content and then someone comes along and lifts it and calls it their own, it's super upsetting. Uh, and I remember when we had Luis Urrea on Right Minded and he told us, you know, that Janine Cummings had basically taken a scene from his book and put it in her novel, American Dirt. And I remember him being emotional about that. You know, he was like, mm-hmm. that was my life, my experience. You know, and the fact that that story didn't get more traction is kind of astounding. But in my case, I, I shut it down. You know, I mean, I emailed the platform. I have a strong relationship with those women who run it and I sent them our curriculum, <laughs> you know, so they were shocked to see like the actual course was the same with the same headings, you know, the same content. And then I emailed my student and she apologized, but it was in a weird way. You know, she said, I know this looks like plagiarism. Hmm. And I, I just said back to her, like, no, it is plagiarism. And we haven't spoken since. Wow. I think this is the other consequence. I mean, as a writer and an author, your reputation is everything. Your relationships are everything. So to plagiarize big or small, you are risking a lot. You know, how people think of you, what kinds of favors you might be able to to pull in later. But listeners, those of you who are hearing all this and feeling concerned, we do have some advice about protecting your work. So you can at least be a little proactive. So Brooke, what, what should writers do? Yeah, register your work with the U.S. Copyright Office. That's super easy to do. Uh, one thing that's even easier is that you can print out all your work, package it up, and then take it to the post office and mail yourself a copy of your manuscript, you know, even if it's at an early stage. So that's something. Uh, that postmark date actually serves as a copyright if you ever needed it, as long as it's unbroken, you know, so you don't open the package. Uh, and you can just tuck it away in the unlikely event that you'd ever need it. Uh, you can also set up Google alerts for your titles so that you can monitor anyone trying to republish your content. Um, and you can do this too by article names even, but the reality is that most people are likely to be copying snippets of content and not full titles. You know, in the case of my student who stole my curriculum, she wasn't calling the class Mastering Memoir. And if Linda Joy hadn't seen the email announcement, I guess she would have taught our content, you know, so there's only so much you can do. Yeah, this is a tough one because you want that integrity and accountability to rest with the writer and not have a bunch of content police out there. But plagiarism can be a real threat. Uh, I understand when you said you felt furious. And as as writers, we should be protective of our creativity and our words and, and protect others' words as well. On that note, we will be back next week with another original podcast to help you hone your originality on the page and listen to new inspiration and perspectives. And we appreciate your support. So please spread the word to your friends to help build a community around our weekly writerly conversations. Thanks so much. 